We're going to move into a discussion on reconciliation and leadership for the net zero transition. And this builds in many ways on another big summit we had had about three or four weeks ago on net zero leadership in this country. And reconciliation and indigenous leadership were highlighted constantly through that as a necessary foundation for it all to succeed. So please join me in welcoming already on the stage, the Managing Director of Indigenous and Northern Investments at the Canada Infrastructure Bank, Hillary Thatcher. <laughs> Senior Vice President of Environmental Services at First Nations Major Project Coalition, Angel Ransom. Thank you, Angel. <laughs> Business Development Manager at NR Store Incorporated and a longtime friend of mine, James Harper. Very nice to see you here. Vice President of Indigenous Relations at ADCO Group, Cole Crook. Thank you very much. And to lead our conversation, Chief Strategy Officer at Blackbird Strategies, Dan Pujak, over to you. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Braden. Thank you to the Canada 2020 team for an amazing job. Uh, I am delighted to be moderating this panel. My name is Dan Pujak, Chief Strategy Officer at Blackbird Strategies and a fellow at the Public Policy Forum. I am joined by an impressive group of people on this stage. Um, and I'm going to turn it over to you each to quickly introduce yourself before we jump into this exciting topic. Thank you, uh, Dan. My name's Cole Crook. I'm with um, ATCO, um, oversee the Indigenous Relations Function at, at ATCO. And ATCO is a, a company that's Alberta-based. We recently celebrated our 75th year anniversary last year. Um, and we've grown from being a, a trailer manufacturer in Alberta to uh, having operations in the U.S., Mexico, South America, and Australia. Um, we're in the utility space, uh, gas and electricity transmission in Alberta, um, gas transmission in Australia, but also in the green energy space as well. Um, we've undertaken a number of initiatives to uh, build out our, uh, our green energy portfolio. Most of those initiatives are in partnership with uh, Indigenous groups, as well as um, exploring opportunities in the, uh, the hydrogen area and the energy storage area as well, as well as uh, ports and logistics in uh, South America. And I'm Hilary Thatcher, and it's nice to see so many familiar faces and new faces as well today. I lead Indigenous and Northern Investments at the Canada Infrastructure Bank. I've been there for just over three years um, and was super pleased. Uh, and I'm looking at Tim Barber down the way uh, with all the support that so many people in this room actually uh, gave to uh, the Canada Infrastructure Bank to see a line item in this year's budget for us to be able to lend directly to Indigenous communities who are investing in uh, major projects. So my background is uh, in the public service for about 25 years, uh, both in the provincial government of Ontario in the energy and infrastructure space and Aboriginal affairs. And then for a short stint with the federal government when uh, the Indigenous Services Ministry was created. And uh, I'm uh, of Métis ancestry from Alberta and uh, I really look forward to this conversation today. Thank you, Hillary. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Angel Ransom. I come to you from the community of Nakasli Waten, which is in the central area of the province of BC. I live in the Clayton Tanay territory now in Prince George, BC. My background is in First Nations land use planning. I've got a degree in environmental planning, whatever that means. But um, <laughs> uh, aside from that, I specialize. I've really taken an interest um, outside of just natural resource management, but particularly an interest in um, the, the land use planning around major projects within Indigenous territories as well. I A lot of the work I do with the First Nations Major Project Coalition, I've been with them since the start, is um, I lead a technical team around capacity development for First Nations on environmental assessments and all that comes with that. I'm not going to get into detail there as I could talk all day about that, but um, 
Really pleased to be here. I'd like to thank the, the territory host, the Anishinaabe, for having us and the invite from Canada 2020 to be up here on stage. So I look forward to sharing some insights and knowledge with you today. Thank you. Uh, I'm from Surgeon Lake Cree Nation, proud citizen of and Treaty 8 territory. My name is Muskokwin James Harper. Uh, my full-time job is with Enerstore, doing uh, business development, essentially enabling energy storage to happen across the great country of Canada. Um, alongside that, I'm, I'm quite busy. I also am very passionate about empowering our Indigenous young people. So I'm the co-chair of 7Gen, where we get uh, we, we try to reach Indigenous young folks to enter the clean energy space and become clean energy leaders in our future net zero economy. Um, and I'm also on the board of Indigenous Clean Energy, trying to champion Indigenous-led and owned clean energy projects across Canada as well. Um, and I'm a proud a proud partner and helpful to to our kids back at home in Treaty One Territory. Thank you for so much for inviting me, Canada 2020. Uh, my good friend Braden, of course, and uh, and the to the Anishinaabe for allowing me to be a guest on this beautiful territory. So clearly, we could not have a better panel up here to have this conversation about net zero. You know, suffice it to say, we're standing at the edge of a complete economic transformation here in Canada and globally. Our last session talked quite a bit about wealth and well-being, and we explored one side of that coin. And as we talk about ideas of net zero, we're thinking about another big idea about human health and the human economy and how things come together. As we think about wealth and well-being, and we think about Indigenous economic reconciliation, and we think about the environmental challenges ahead of us, how do we start to wrap these concepts together into one? Well, um... Really, if you look at it, health and well-being and um, um, environmental wellness are, as we've discussed in the earlier panels, really one and the same. Certainly, um, in order to be healthy and, and uh, as per Mr. Haydu's comments a little bit earlier, to experience well-being, you have to live in a, a warm home. Um, you have to be able to turn the lights on. You have to live in a, in, um, in a community that's not completely destroyed by environmental degradation. And really the path to net zero um, and focusing on identifying ways where less carbon intensive fuels can potentially be used. Um, hybrid solutions could be used that rely on um, um, green technologies to minimize that impact is, is fairly key. Ensuring that uh, people do have the luxury of, of a warm home and being able to turn the lights on but at the same time aren't sacrificing the environment to achieve that. Maybe I'll just talk a little bit about a quick story because um, it's the only thing I know is stories from other people and it's their experiences. And so uh, in Ontario, a number of years ago, um, a group of First Nations have been working for a long time in Northwestern Ontario on um, the clean transition. Um, I was a junior staffer in the Ministry of Energy at the time. And, you know, I'd speak to the chiefs and they talk about their vision of a transmission line to connect all their communities and get them off diesel. And I kept being told by my senior officials, the ADMs and the deputy, like, don't waste your time on that. Like, they, they would never make any economic sense. You can't, we can't make economic sense of this. The population's too small. You know, it's just a small, you know, amount of pollution going into the environment overall. Like, we need to be targeting the big emitters in, like, the major cities. However, with a lot of strong leadership, um, the CEO for Watkinia Power, Margaret Kinnikwash, who was actually, who actually spoke here last year, um, 
was determined. Uh, and if you know Margaret, you know she's mm -hmm. determined and she doesn't un understand the word no, and she kept forging forward. And so she and I worked together. I would moved on to another role in uh, the Ontario Power Authority where we were able to come up with some funding to actually study the economics of the transition. So what would it cost the federal government, who currently pays for diesel to be often flown into the communities because the winter roads don't last long enough. So what's the difference between the cost of diesel for these 20 or so communities versus a transmission line? And so we determined that, and with lots of people way smarter than me who can figure out the math, they looked at the net present value and found that over a 40 year horizon, there would be a net savings to the federal government of $700 million. When you use that kind of language with the federal funders and the Department of Finance in particular, their ears perk and they see themselves out of the business of, you know, supplying diesel and repairing diesel generators and, um, you know, in the business of supporting that community well-being, which was really the key driver. And when I went to all of the communities in the Wate project, um, you know, we would meet with elders and the key, the key piece that they, and to just mark on what you were speaking about, the, the key interest was not necessarily about the clean transition that was important, but it was about the reliable supply of power because their communities, their economies can't grow when you can only light up the houses and not the band office in the evenings. And you can't have the, the school running a gym in the evenings because the houses need the power. There wasn't enough power to sustain the whole community. And so, you know, you, it's about, at providing healthy homes, it's about providing a healthy environment for kids to thrive, for elders to be able to, you know, live in their homes during the daytime and, and have power. And so um, that clean transition is really critical. And I think a lot about the North in particular, because these communities may be small and maybe a small amount of the emissions that are entering into the atmosphere. But when a community gets connected and has a reliable supply of power, they then have the opportunity to grow and flourish in other ways that are just unimaginable when you take for granted the fact that all I have to do is a flick on a light in my house in Ottawa and I'll never have to worry about whether or not the lights go on. Mm, such a big transformative project. Mm -hmm. And Angel, you're working on big transformative projects like this all the time with your colleagues. How do we think about that net zero component hand in hand with economic reconciliation and health? I think it's a lot in what we've heard today in, in um, taking the what my friend Shannon had said earlier around we need healthy people to reach long, our longer term visions that we're reaching for. Where is a project going? How is this going to contribute to the community development goals, the community social needs? Um, working with the community to really look at things in a holistic approach, um, in an early planning approach that includes the communities and whose territories these clean energy projects may be, may be impacting or benefiting. Um, it's not every project's an, an, an impact, but I think um, the solution is really taking it from a community value approach first. What do the communities need? I introduced a panel at our FNMPC conference around Palladium Mine, um, Bitnagong. Yeah, Bitnagong First Nation. Like they said, they needed a water treatment facility, for example, um, they need housing to accommodate the transient population that comes with these projects. There's a number of things that they needed that the Crown Consultation team had um, really in, brought in all the different departments at the federal government, but also the proponent was supporting them and ensuring that their community values were being addressed, their interests, their concerns were being addressed. And then they started talking about the projects. And then they worked in a collaborative approach through the land use planning of those projects to 
identify suitable areas. Um, if And then not only that, um, supporting the communities and things like the work I do where, you know, there's the government regulatory processes and they can get drawn out quite long and qu quite often communities don't have capacities or quite frankly um, interest in participating in every single step and every single study of an environmental assessment so if you take a community values approach and um, identify what's going to be assessed how that's going to be assessed where the projects are going where they're not going and ensuring that community values are met I think that's the way forward hopefully that made sense James <laughs> yeah <clears throat> I think um, I'm just I'm just going to be real here. I mean, this this conversation is is really relevant and uh, close to my heart as we speak. Um, I don't know if you've seen in the news that uh, Sturgeon Lake at the moment of being evacuated out of control, wildfires happening uh, across Treaty 8 territory uh, and growing and growing. Um, this you know, wildfires should not be happening at this time of the year at this scale. And I think we are all very aware that these these weather anomalies are just going to become more and more prevalent. And we need to be acting faster. Um, and the science backs this up. So this net zero vision that we all have is one that is really, really affecting me as we speak. Uh, because not only is our territory littered with with a bunch of abandoned wells, uh, water that we can't trust anymore across our, our trap line, um, you know, all of the effects that come with the extractive industry in our territory. Now we are also bearing with the climate change effects, effects of which we did not contribute to. We we are, as Hillary was mentioning, one of the lowest emitting population in the entire world, yet we are confronted with the the greatest effects that come with climate change. And I think about my my family members who some of some of whom are are not uh, following the evacuation orders because they are building fire breaks because they are maintaining the water treatment plant, put out the fire. Uh, they're they are putting their lives at stake. So when you when you talk about health and how that's interrelated into net zero, into climate action, it's happening before my eyes. And unfortunately, this is this is a reality that a lot of our communities, if not already, will be facing. And so for me, this this work is is so is so personal. It's it's very it's very close to my heart because I care about where I come from. I care about my home. I care about my family, and this is this is uh, a growing reality that uh, that we will have to confront and do something about. So we need to act. We really need to keep moving faster. I know I know a lot of policy folks will say, you know, we're moving as fast as we can. We're moving. You know, legislation takes you know certain processes. Um, the markets need to catch up. You know, we need to overcome risk over here. Um, it will take some time. Infrastructure projects don't just get started right away. But I just, I challenge everyone in this room, can we just please move a little bit faster for the sake of my nation and for the sake of all of us in our, in our common home? So I want to pick up on a few themes here. I think we know that the way that development has happened in the past has led to these types of 
impacts that we can't ignore today, that there are real risks to human health. And I think we also know very well that there's a massive infrastructure deficit in many First Nation, Métis, and Inuit communities, and it's an infrastructure deficit that, that's not acceptable. One of the major themes of economic reconciliation and reconciliation in general has been around self-determination and recognizing that indigenous peoples and indigenous communities have levers that they should be able to exercise and pull. And Hillary, if it's okay, maybe maybe I'll, I'll kind of toss this question over to you at first. As we think about where these massive infrastructure gaps are, where is it that indigenous control over economic levers could help fill those gaps and maybe change the trajectory that we're on? It's a it's a really good question. And, um, you know, we talk about the indigenous infrastructure gap and I'd like I'd like to talk first about that um, infrastructure can be defined in many, many ways. And so for me and the and the Canada Infrastructure Bank, we define it as, um, you know, it's the transmission lines, it's the water, it's the wastewater. It's not the actual buildings, the social infrastructure, if you will, the the school or the housing. And those are often defined by communities as infrastructure. And so when you look at the recent report by the Assembly of First Nations and they've identified a $350 billion infrastructure gap in First Nations, the the gap has been defined by many different organizations and it goes anywhere from $20 billion to now the latest from the FN, $350 billion. So it's a big gap. We know that it's growing um, and we have to leapfrog and it's not dissimilar to, you know, the education gap where, you know, we keep making the same investments and increasing investments, but the gap continues because outcomes in education are improving among non-Indigenous. So you keep seeing the gap persist. And so we really do have to leapfrog with more investments. And so I think, you know, from my perspective, it's providing communities who are self-determining, um, Indigenous communities across the country from coast to coast to coast, First Nations, Métis and Inuit, with tools in the toolbox. If communities continue to rely strictly on government to come up with solutions and grant solutions, we will wait a very, very long time. There's too much need right now um, to be able to close that gap, whether it's $30 billion or $350 billion. There's just too much need and too great a need to be able to um, uh, close the gap right away. And so, um, for example, we provide loans to communities to help to help close the gaps that they identify are the key priorities and for the reasons and for the impacts that the community identifies as the as the impacts so when i'm working with a community that's diesel reliant um you know my primary impact is not the same as the rest of the canada infrastructure bank where i'm looking at dollars per ghd uh, reduced i can't do that in an indigenous community that doesn't make any sense and in fact when i talk to the communities they don't know what i'm talking about when i talk about ghg reduction they want to know that the kid who lives next to that diesel generation gen set and the families whose houses rumble at night when the generation's running all night, that they can have more better restful nights, that they can actually study, that the kids don't have childhood asthma that's caused directly from the plumes of black smoke that end up in the air. So we can work with them on the impacts, but we can also provide loans that are suited for their community needs. And they're con it's concessionary capital. The Canada Infrastructure Bank is a crown corporation. So we will lend at very, like the lowest rates on the market. Um, it doesn't get lower than the CIB. Um, and we can do it, we can amortize over a long period of time. So we look at the life of the asset. 
And then we work with the community to make sure that they understand and they are in control of the procurement process. They're in control of, you know, can they let some of the contracts in their own community so that they can keep jobs in their communities? And we'll work with them on finding other partners to help them with their development if they need more expertise. And that way, they, it's just another tool in the toolbox so that they can move their project forward on their timelines and not waiting for different governments' timelines and availability of capital uh, to provide grants to the program. So I think it's, it, there's a lot of pieces in there, but I think it's making sure that the tools are available for communities to participate. When you're thinking about major projects, those communities are offered a stake um, in a project need access to capital so they can actually make a meaningful contribution. They can actually buy their equity because um, it's not gifted. And so in order to be able to access uh, capital, as I mentioned earlier in my opening comments, we can now do direct, lend direct lending for that equity. But we have partners like Atco we've worked with who have also found ways to, as private sector companies, to lend equity. We see loan guarantees in some jurisdictions, Alberta, Ontario, have, and Saskatchewan have loan guarantee programs. Um, and we see partners like NR Store, who are working really closely with uh, Six Nations of the Grand River and other communities to find, uh, find ways to partner and move forward Indigenous inclusion um, that will generate own source revenues that then enables the community to move along that continuum of self-determination and use its own source of revenues to invest in their key priorities, whether they're health, education, housing, um, or more economic development. Mm -hmm. I just want to add to that, that I know with the, the work we do with FNMPC, quite often the, a barrier of accessing these investment opportunities is that access to low interest capital or federal or loan guarantees. And so I guess my one zinger message here is that we, we continue to advocate and we continue to, to push the federal government to establish and Indigenous federal loan guarantee programs that will open up these opportunities that will help build our communities, build our economy, and build our country together. I'm curious to hear from the private sector side of ATCO. Sure. One thing I've, I've definitely definitely noticed, um, and I think this is a, a real strong lever that Indigenous communities can employ, is the whole concept of, of energy sovereignty. And, and I've seen this with many, many communities where they, they look at the, uh, the energy infrastructure that services their community or potentially generating power as, as a way to, to provide uh, control over that, uh, that energy in their community. And, and um, certainly we're seeing more and more, uh, more, and more communities take a strong interest in that. And it's, it's, it's coming into effect really in terms of, you know, a good example is the um, partnership that ATCO has with the Denon Day Developments um, with our North of 60 um, electric business, where they own the majority of the equity in the uh, um, distribution and, and transmission infrastructure in, in uh, the territories. Um, and again, to to, um, to throw out a, a bit of a, a plug to uh, um, the CIB and um, my friends at FNMPC, providing that uh, that access to capital as well is is fairly crucial. There's a number of projects we are looking at, uh, green energy projects where, and that's always seems to be the barrier, and that's the riddle of the Sphinx, solving that that capital question where an indigenous group could have a sizable or majority portion of the uh, the equity, and and CIB is. Um, excellent for layering on in addition to potential grant funding or, or um, like Enercan funding or other or other monies that the government puts forward. CIB coming in at, at very, very favorable rates allows these projects to become a reality and allows Indigenous groups to have a, an equity stake. FNMPC as well with the, um, and I, I use it all the time, the uh, the repository of studies and, and other things that you guys have. 
provides great learnings. And um, I'm finding that this is a tool that a lot of nations can use to, to understand the whole concept of equity participation and understand how they can uh, have real equity in a project and buy their equity stake and take ownership. So definitely this is allowing nations to have this and participate as partners, as equity partners, and, and really achieve this energy sovereignty concept. And, and we're seeing a lot of nations buying in, and I think it's, it's going to grow and, and continue to expand as the green energy transition continues to happen and there's more and more solar, wind, and other green energy technologies that indigenous groups now have access to capital to participate in. James, you so eloquently brought us back to the community reality before. I'm curious, what, what do you see on the ground as some of these uh, levers that might be pulled to reshape the trajectory of the future? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I see a lot of hope, um, which is why I keep going. Um, the, the work that we do at Enerstore really reminds me that um, it's, it's not just the fact that we need to put wind turbines and solar panels and, and storage and all these great, wonderful technologies that will certainly help us get to net zero, but it's about the approach. Because um, if we if we do energy development with, with solar and, and wind the same way that we did with, uh, I like to call it en energy industry 1.0, where we're simply uh, tearing up the land and moving folks around and no 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 benefits to anybody except except the uh, the companies involved and all that um if we're if we're repeating that then we're still in the same place and to me that that doesn't even mean anything towards meaningful climate action um i think i think climate action is very inclusive of of empowering indigenous peoples who who rightfully and have since time immemorial been stewards of those territories and so why not why not empower indigenous folks to be to be proponents leaders in these projects because they understand the territories the, the best they know way more beyond uh you know where to site projects and and how to be sensitive to, to certain you know environmental features of, of a certain territory things like this um plus you know, in a lot of indigenous communities, mine, mine included, are, are still stuck in a place where we're sort of handcuffed to temporary solutions because we're just scraping by. I have a lot of empathy for, for our chief and council who really does their best. Um, we, have, we have community members who knock at their door almost every day wanting formula, wanting uh, diapers, wanting uh, a roof over their head, you know, very, very simple requests. And so chief and council usually, and this is a common reality, are placed in a very difficult position. Um, now what I'm seeing, however, is that clean energy technology uh, being renewable, uh, being greatly aligned, at least where I come from as, as a Nikhil, as a Cree person, shows us that we can actually coexist in a good way while having access to affordable and clean electricity. And that to me is my passion. I feel like the technology is here now and all that, all that's really in our way now is, is how we actually get them built and how do we get them meaningfully owned and led uh, by indigenous communities. And then doing so unlocks so much potential for the community to reinvest that revenue into much needed community, uh, community services and other investments that that would grow that that prosperity 
Um, so, so for the Oneida project that uh, we've been working closely with the CIB with um, is, is, is a great example of, of it's, it's about the approach. Enterstore being private, we could have totally just developed this whole project with, without, and it would have been a huge mistake, but you know, we, it could have, that could have been the approach that could have been the reality. And that still is the reality for many, um, for many developments to this day. Uh, but you know, the approach was, was so needed. It was so understood that it was needed, uh, that we developed with six nations of the grand river in a 50, 50 partnership, because we know, and we trust that they are the stewards of that territory and they know it well. Um, and so we developed it together and uh, I'm excited that it will be one of, uh, one of Canada's, if I think one of Canada's once built largest battery energy storage projects. Um, and it's been, it's been a lot of work, uh, but nonetheless, something that I'm really looking forward to getting shovels in the ground for. And, and additionally to Hillary's point, we're working in the North. We have a partnership with the Hamlet of Arviat and we're trying to get Arviat off of diesel. Uh, two megawatts of wind and uh, solar and storage, and hopefully getting those that diesel reduced essentially to zero, um, and creating energy sovereignty within the hamlet, um, and as well as a source of jobs and, and revenue. I just want to say that the Oneida Battery Project. I think you're underselling it because I recall correctly, it's going to be not just the largest in Ontario and Canada, but one of the largest in the world. So that's the magnitude and scale of this battery storage project. And it's going to alleviate a ton of GHGs and create, you know, all the green energy that was developed in, in Ontario doesn't have to, it can be stored there now when, you know, when it's needed to be dispatched in Ontario instead of being sold at a discount and often at a cost to jurisdictions outside of Ontario. So it's, a, it's going to be huge benefit to the grid in Ontario and cleaning the grid. And uh, to your point, um, you have a ruthless CEO who is just so determined um, and she's she, there was no questions from day one that she would do anything she did is going to be done in partnership and with the benefit of poor community. That's right. That's right. Thank you, Hillary. Yeah. I just want to add, um, I think another lever that Indigenous nations and our, our partners can pull together um, it, it comes back around again, the land use planning and the actual planning and coordination and sequencing of projects as a whole system rather than a piecemeal approach. Because my community, when I was my community planner 15 years ago, I was pummeled with six environmental assessments of five LNG, pro six LNG projects within a six month window of each other. So you can imagine I'm trying to sift through, you know, 39,000 pages of documents when we're like, why didn't you coordinate this? And like, planted like there's already impacts to the land along the hydro transmission line right away why don't we look at that let's like coordinate the approach and the planning of these projects in a location that makes sense that when there's a mine built that it can connect into the transmission line that's going to connect into the spillway of a hydro dam and that's communities are tired of consultation we're tired of this piecemeal approach and it's like we have great ideas and if you support us but then we get blocked with bureaucracy or BC hydros of the world that are like, no, we're not giving you a power sharing agreement. I'm like, here we go again. We're back at square one. So I just really like my planner's dream vision is taking those coordinated approach because we want development. We want economy. We want communities off of diesel. We want to build our houses in our own schools. And we can do that if we plan together. Well, let's think about some of this big systems change stuff for just a moment. James, you mentioned working up in the north. 
Uh, a few weeks ago, Canada 2020 hosted Premier Carolyn Cochran from the Northwest Territories at a net zero summit. And she talked about some of the challenges and opportunities up there. Uh, Cole, you do a lot of partnership building in the North, Hillary. Uh, so do you. Um, the North doesn't always get its fair share of attention down here in the South. So I do want to turn the topic there just for a moment. I'm really curious what you see as some of the open opportunities in the North to transform Canada's trajectory and lead on this net zero economy and lead on Indigenous economic reconciliation. And Cole, maybe I'll pass it over to you first. No, for certain. <clears throat> Excuse me. This was, was touched on a little bit earlier, but one of the big issues we see in, in the North is, is the reliance on diesel. And, um, you know, this is, is not um, strictly North of 60. I know there's plenty of communities in, in Treaty 8 as well that are reliant on above ground propane bullets or, or wood stoves or other infrastructure that doesn't fare real well when there's forest fires or, or, or other issues. And I think one of the, the key things that needs to be looked at in, in, in addressing this is, of course, reliability is, is very, very important, it's particularly in these remote and austere environments where, you know, if the power goes out, it's a question of, of people's lives at stake. You know, it's, 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 it's not an inconvenience, it's life and death sort of situation. So, you know, certainly, um, I don't think based on the fact that these communities are, are remote, there's no pipeline infrastructure immediately available to tie into gas. Perhaps there's a future with other um, uh, less carbon intensive fuels like uh, liquefied natural gas, or in the case of, of what James explained, um, developing a system that'll you know rely very, very heavily on renewables and, and battery storage. But I do think ultimately there needs to be a way to, to maybe not eliminate diesel as, as a backup but mitigate the use of diesel. And, and certainly solar diesel hybrids are, are potential solutions. Um, and of course, it's not going to eliminate diesel, but it's going to uh, um, mitigate the use of diesel by thousands of liters a year. Um, and, and certainly as, as technology improves and battery storage improves, this can be further mitigated. And maybe there's an opportunity at, at some point to, to substitute some of those uh, more carbon intensive fuels um, to less carbon intensive fuels like natural gas and continue the transition from there. I would just say, and uh, I agree, there's a, there's a transition fuel likely in between. Um, we're working on some RNG projects right now in communities. Um, we're looking at, and we are working on an, uh, like a liquefied natural gas project up in the far Arctic. Um, but, you know, the, the, one of the main differences in, in our Arctic and certainly across Inuit Nunaat, so that's, you know, the Inuit homeland from Northwest Territories all the way to uh, Northern Labrador, all of those communities are diesel reliant. Every single one of them, about 50 Inuit communities are diesel reliant. And um, transmission lines may be one part of the solution. We're working on a, the Kavalik Hydrofiber Link, which is going to bring transmission and clean power up to um, central part of Nunavut, to five uh, communities in central Nunavut. Um, but and it may be a bad word among some folks in the clean transition space, but SMRs and um, modular reactors are going to be um, a tool that can actually alleviate and create microgrids with reliability and a solution to not just have, you don't need a backup diesel generator when you have that kind of a stable system in place. And so the future is really bright if you believe it, that, uh, you know, nuclear needs to play a part of our clean transition role. I know that um, there is an SMR under development right now in Ontario with OPG, um, and they're working in partnership with First Nations. 
of First Nations Power Authority out of Saskatchewan has been a huge proponent of bringing nuclear to Saskatchewan. And I think that this is going to be a part of our transition. So there's a lot of hope because there's a, the technology is there. It's figuring out is their capital. Having communities lead these builds because when communities lead the builds, the values of the communities are at the forefront and they are built better, they are built on time, and they are built on budget, which is important. And, uh, you know, that's just been my experience across the way. But I would say that across uh, the Arctic, it is left out. Um, we have to remember the Arctic. The uh, Northwest Passage is predicted to be open in by 2040. We don't have a single deep water port across our Arctic. Um, that's a problem. We, our airports in Nunavut, 24 of 25 airports are being affected right now by permafrost, which means landing uh, current fleets of airplanes can't happen on 24 of the 25 communities. So they have to bring in small cargo planes versus the standard cargo planes. We have issues of infrastructure uh, up in the Arctic and it's not just an off diesel solution, but it's a whole gamut of infrastructure needs across the full, full Arctic. Mm, I've definitely spent my time waiting in Goose Bay trying to get into the Nazi of it, so I can, uh, yeah. I, I feel that one. Yeah. James, you were speaking before about a project in Arviat. I'm, I'm really curious for your view on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm very passionate about uh, the, the clean energy future and uh, empowering our Indigenous nations with, with the technology and with the know-how. And so I agree with, with my panelists here that, you know, the access to capital barriers and the regulatory barriers to, to get PPAs and all that stuff, it makes my job very interesting. Um, but I also recognize that, that there's still a need to, to help empower our community members on a knowledge basis. And I do fully, wholeheartedly, don't get it twisted. I think we have very, very competent, capable people in our communities that can lead these initiatives. But how do we empower the nations to, to really be there in, in full confidence and, and really ask what they, what they really need and what they really, what they really want? Um, so what we do at Indigenous Clean Energy is, is provide sort of that capacity building training through Catalyst program, for example. Uh, we take 20 folks about uh, every single year in, in a sort of a three-week three intensive explaining all these things about project financing, project structuring, um, the, techni the technical details of clean energy, um, all the while also building a community and meeting um, policy folks as well, getting the networks established for, for communities. Uh, I'm also pleased to say that, um, you know, I, I wear an iron ring and I try to use it for the, for the power of good. And so right now I'm, um, I'm quite the uh, quite good at Excel. Uh, so right now, um, Enerstore and ICE were working on a clean microgrid toolkit, essentially where it is a fabulous, full, well-rounded Excel thing where community members can really just plug in basic information about where they are and what their community is, um, and start building a business case for building solar, wind, and storage in their communities. And for me. Empowering the knowledge to the communities is, is so important and is a key piece to this whole conversation. James, I'm going to ask for your help on some Excel formulas <laughs> later now that I know. I'll tell you my rate. Okay, so we'll, we'll chat offline about this one. Angel, you're working with so many communities that are so diverse across Canada. I'm, I'm curious where you see some of those leapfrog opportunities too. Um, 
I really, I think the work we do with FNMPC is um, an opportunity within itself. And it's not because I just work with them. But I think the opportunities are just coming together in spaces like this today, spaces in the conferences we do, and really coming with an open mind and an open heart to listening to the issues we we continuously repeat at, things, at events like this but also talking through those hard discussions around how are we going to get solutions to where we want to go together and um, just really yeah I guess the opportunity is to come into spaces like this regardless of your differences of opinions and try to work together on identifying a path forward together it might not be perfect it might be bumpy it might be hard but just learning about the projects as I'm sitting here is open up my my mind and my thinking and wanting to also do more planning in the Arctic now and um, just really sharing examples of what's working and what's not. I can't remember what speaker it was, but it really rung true to me around like governments permit and First Nations provide permission. You know, if we're working together, getting through regulatory process, doing the planning together, investing, getting access to capital, we can make great things happen together by working together. Together we are strong. So, so as a policy nerd, I think that's actually on my business card, just Dan, policy nerd. You've <laughs> all given me a whole bunch of things to look into after this, but I, I wanna turn to a policy question for a second here. Um, a lot of First Nations, Métis, Inuit communities, they're Northern, they're Arctic, they're rural, they're remote. Um, I think about 60% of indigenous people live outside of large cities. Uh, and a lot of times our policy frameworks focused on rural and northern development are a little bit siloed. They don't necessarily align exactly with the indigenous economic reconciliation or economic development uh, policy approaches. So I'm curious, um, for policymakers in the room, what types of ideas might you put forward for them to be thinking about in terms of integrating rural, arctic, northern policy approaches and indigenous economic development approaches? Well, I think um, one thing that needs to be seriously looked at is um, a rethinking of what constitutes value. You know, in, in the past, it was, it was very, very focused on, and this is one of the reasons why a lot of these communities in these remote areas were underserved. Um, it was a strictly uh, balance sheet exercise. And, and of course, um, balance sheets are important. Business needs to, to make sense. But I think, you know, the true um, evaluation of a project may not rest solely on the dollars and cents aspect. You know, I think there needs to be value attributed to um, the fact that connecting these communities to um, or providing an energy solution to these communities that does all these things, in addition to being able to turn the lights on, that promotes health, promotes economic development, promotes um, all these additional things, needs to be recognized and, and uh, um, quantified into the, uh, the value calculation. Um, certainly, the government has um, has taken some very, very good steps with Enercan and and, and uh, you know, with groups like the the CIB that you know are, are working to resolve the capital issue and allowing uh, equity inclusion, um, but definitely for bigger projects like um, the Kavalik uh, um, Hydrolink, certainly the, the the costs around that are are huge. But you know, I think the value needs to be attributed more towards and looked at more as a nation building opportunity, an opportunity to to further advance reconciliation, much like when the railway was built. Certainly on paper, that didn't look like it made a heck of a lot of sense, but it, it's what unified the country. And I think going forward, that really is what needs to be considered by by policymakers is, is what is the overall intrinsic value, not just the dollars and cents aspect. Hmm. 
And, and maybe to build on on that and the Kavalik situation in particular, you know, there's this expectation today that um, private sector is going to come in and save the day and build these massive infrastructure projects. That wasn't the situation on the National Rail Corridor. That wasn't the private sector doing it. And so there's a transition of risk after it's built to private ownership over many, many, many years. Um, and so I think we need to rethink some of these larger projects um, like the Cavalix. But when I'm thinking about smaller community-based regions and more rural settings or and even remote settings, you know, there's often municipalities, small municipalities nearby and other jurisdictions. I'm working on a couple of really interesting projects right now where the community is going to be building its wastewater system large enough so it serves the rural municipality because the rural municipality also has a sewage issue and they all have septic tanks, but they can't get, they can't also get access to capital and they don't have the expertise. So the First Nations building, they're upsizing the site, their facility so that they can receive the waste from the rural municipality. They'll be a service provider. And because they'll have these revenues coming in from the rural municipality, there's enough revenues to justify building out a larger system on their reserve to future-proof their community so that they can actually build and grow the way that their community needs to grow because of the way their population is instead of just doing you know, a piecemeal approach. And so I think there's a need for creativity, innovation. And I hear more and more that communities, like non-Indigenous communities, are looking, are faced with similar challenges. The high cost of, of infrastructure and the smaller populations, can't they can't justify what to invest in what they need. So you're seeing these types of things happening. Uh, it's not happening fast enough for those of us who are impatient, like myself, but it's happening. And so we just need to continue to spur that creativity and innovative uh, approaches. I guess um, all I'll add is, is kind of some of the messaging I heard today and, and just First Nations don't need help. We're just asking for support to work together to reach towards a goal and really around policy and um, process. Quite often that's where things I find get hindered, opportunities get lost is, is your, you know, you got the federal government saying one thing, doing a process one way, and then you got the province of BC doing an environmental assessment a different way. And there's no coordination or collaboration or else, um, you know, if we got, ever get an Indigenous federal loan guarantee, it's like, we just want your support, but get out of the way with all the bureaucracy so we can get to where we're going or quit policying us to death with, well, it doesn't meet this text box. Now you have to go to this department or you have to go to that department. And, you know, you get a big runaround and that's where you're wasting time. And it's like, we've got a vision. We know how to get there. We just need the support and we want to work with you. And, you know, if we could start thinking in that way a little bit more, I think um, we'd all we've faster forward together. Also, by the way, um, I relate to policy nerd. I think I think that's my my <laughs> title on my business card too, uh, mostly because I'm very concerned about about climate policy. And there's so much to, to dive into. Um, I've had the privilege of, of attending the previous two COPs, for example, um, and I didn't want to go unprepared. So I spent so much time reading um, the the climate uh, impact reports, for example, um, trying to figure out how, how does this relate to UNDRIP? How does this relate to MMIW? How does this relate to RCAP? How does this relate to so many, so many things that, that, uh, that exist in terms of policy? How does this all intertwine? So I was having tea and bannock with, uh, with my cookum, as they usually do. And, um, you know, we're just dishing the tea. We're just talking. 
I'm telling her, you know, I'm really, really confused and overwhelmed with all of this policy. I kind of, I kind of feel nervous. I don't feel like I should go to cop. And she's, she's telling me, she's just like, well, you certainly should go, uh, because you know, this, you would be representing our nation and at least learning a lot of things and meeting folks that, that can help us, um, protect our territory. But she also said, you know, okay, maybe let's just forego all those policies, you know, international frameworks, Paris Agreement, SDGs, you name it. Those are great and fun. But what really matters to us is, is the treaty, Treaty 8. And she says to me, she's like, you know, the Treaty 8 and among other number treaties, it is actually the foundational environmental document that we have in what is now known as Canada. Oh, how's that? How's that? And she says, she's like, the famous phrase at the end says, as this treaty is valid, shall hold, so long as the rivers flow, the sun shines, the grass grows. And, you know, she was like, it sounds like a fun, cute statement, but actually it's, it's a responsibility. It says that, well, in fact, if we are serious about upholding this treaty as partners, as, as First Nations and as the Crown and every settler that, that comes through, um, that is also a treaty person, must also, is very uh, uh, obligated to uphold the fact that, that the sun will continue to shine, that the waters will continue to flow. So she says, never mind all that, just know that you are a descendant of a treaty signatory. And because of that, you have that core responsibility. And that comes, that comes with, with us understanding our place as stewards of our territory. And that is why that phrase is there. It wasn't just there just to, to sound nice. It was there actually to hold us accountable to, to the, again, the, the shared common home that we have in protecting it. So whenever I get overwhelmed by policy, this and that, I always just think about what she said and, and um, being proud of where I come from in, in Treaty 8. What a powerful reminder that we're all, you know, we are all each other's people, as Minister Haidu said before this, and that we all hold those treaty obligations. For the record, if you ever need policy notes, I'll trade them for the Excel spreadsheet <laughs> so we can chat about that. There you go. There you go. We only have a few minutes left, so I want to end on a bit of a tactful note. We have an amazing room of people here. Canada 2020 uh, inspires so many fantastic people to come to its events. Um, we have policymakers, advocates, business folks investors, industry leaders, uh, and a captive audience if they just close the doors and lock them for a few seconds. Uh, <laughs> what's the most significant change you'd like to see in indigenous infrastructure and economic development projects as we advance through the net zero transition and the policies that you'd like the people in this room to walk out with thinking about? And Angel, I'll toss it over to you first. It's a bit of a loaded question because I'm sure I've got a lot of really good ideas, but I think um, just to be supportive in policy change that is supportive of more inclusive Indigenous participation in all that we do in our economy. Um, if there's better standards like the First Nations Major Project Assessment Standards that a community wants to use as their, their bar to get through environmental assessments, support them in integrating those types of Indigenous designed and led standards into your environmental management plans, into your 
environmental assessment processes into your capital negotiations. Um, just be open to doing things more creatively and differently. That sometimes busts and breaks policy. <laughs> no, I'm just joking, but, um, you know, I just, I've, I, I hate being confined by policy. Sometimes like it comes down to a simple thing like the Indian act. I've got an Indian status card that gives me more privileges than my blood brother. And I'm like, we're the same people at the end of the day. And because policy, that doesn't change who you are and what your beliefs are just because policy says so. So that's all I got to say for now. Thank you. Who wants to go next? <laughs> I'll go. One, one thing I'd like to see more formally recognized, and it, it is to an extent, but you know, I'm, I'm looking at this from a, a business lens. Uh, and certainly um, from a business lens, you always want to try to see policies advance that help your business. Uh, but one thing I, I would really like to see more formally recognized is recognition in policy and, and rewarding um, Indigenous groups and companies that come together and develop joint ventures, uh, providing uh, an opportunity for those companies to uh, to perhaps have a, um, um, and when, what's the right word I'm looking for? Preferable ability to pursue projects. Um, you know, opportunities that, uh, you know, government will, will reward these sort of relationships. Um, or industry, for example, RFPs that are issued will recognize it and it's, it's, it's incorporated into policy where these sort of relationships where indigenous groups have equity and are participating in, in the delivery of of a product or service or participating in business in partnership or, or separately um, get uh, get far greater um, opportunities. And I think through something like that, that compels business to work with indigenous groups where in the past they may not ever chose to go alone, but it, it compels industry to engage on an equitable basis with indigenous groups and ensure that there's revenue sharing and stuff will help lift uh, communities um, in some cases out of poverty, but also will allow for uh, indigenous groups to have that opportunity to participate in the economy and, and grow to the point where they don't have to focus on partnerships. They're doing it on their own and they're in a case where they're um, working with industry, even competing with industry, but on, a, on an equitable playing field. I think that might be a step that might be a good first step. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, I think, um, I think we're on the right track. Um, I think there's a lot of hope. Um, and thank you, Angel, for reminding me that I do need to renew my status card. <laughs> Yeah, I might, I might not be an Indian anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I really think that, um, I think this is going to sound abstract. I really, I really do like, um, like, you know, do this, do that, uh, points on a panel, but I'm just going to challenge to think a little bit broader at how, at how intertwined climate policy needs to be with with reconciliation and uh and and how actually those two sort of concepts those policy sort of areas um are are essentially the same thing um and i'm not going to give you all the answers uh but uh they are to me they're the same thing and so with with knowing that how do we move forward um together as treaty partners by the way um, such that we lead in, in the world in, in being true, meaningful climate leaders, climate action leaders. Um, and we can only do so if, if indigenous nations are, are empowered to, to be there in, in the spirit of, of true, meaningful partnership.
I think that it's all been said. Um, we're in a really challenging time. I'm really hopeful to your point. Um, I think there is a lot of hope. Um, we have technology. The money's there. There's capital, um, whether it's from private sector, indigenous trusts, government, you know, the money's there. We need to find a path to bring the technology, the capital, and then the human spirits and resources to actually jettison to net zero. Like we have, you know, we have these notional timelines. 2050 is net zero, like 2030 is like that transition point. And like we have these timelines that they're kind of like, I don't know who came up with, I guess, round dates. So 30, 50 make a lot of sense. Maybe that's what we thought we could accomplish. But I think we can actually leapfrog and get there much faster than 2050. I think we, we owe it not just to ourselves, but to future generations. Um, and when I think about from the community lens, I think about my kids and my future grandchildren and my future great-grandchildren who I hope get to thrive on this earth um, that we have set up to protect um, so it can last for many, many, many generations past us and the rest of us in this room. So I would just say we need to collaborate between private sector, government, uh, communities, um, you know, we all, I'm going to just put it out there. We all want the same thing. We want a better future for our, our children. Um, and to get there, we have to, I think we all agree, we have to get off of the fossil fuels. We have to move towards clean power. We have to, you know, think about Mother Earth. And to do that, we need to then, I think it was said earlier, Douglas Anderson last night, we have to then figure out what's that common place and then work back. How are we going to get there? and see if we can do it in 2040. Like, why don't we split the difference, right? And, uh, and be a bit more ambitious. And I think it's within our purview to do that. I have to say, I'm gonna be leaving this panel today feeling a lot more optimistic than I walked into the room this morning about, uh, about uh, the net zero transition, the future. Uh, and obviously there's such amazing opportunity here. So thank you for sharing your stories. Thank you for sharing your insights, Cole, James. Angel, Hillary, thank you everybody for joining and thank you Canada 2020 for hosting this amazing day.